Welcome to another Booch News podcast with Ian Griffin. Well, today I'm on the phone with Rachel Rapper, who's the founder of Coastal Craft Kombucha, uh, based on the shores of Long Island, out in the East Coast, near New York City. And it's great to talk with you, Rachel. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me, Ian. I am doing great. Um, really excited to be here and to share a little bit more about my story and Coastal Craft and where I am today. Yeah, and... and um, for those of you who are just listening on the podcast, I, there is a companion, as always, post on Booch News where Rachel's been very clear about why, she, why you started the company and where it's taken you over 10 years and, of course, now the recent decision that you made to move on. But what, what is the history of what's the story of your uh, kombucha enterprise and, and coastal craft over the years, uh, in the 10 years or so since you first uh, went into business? Yeah, so um, it was really from start to finish, um, the intention was really creativity and passion. I have a art background primarily with some training in the food sector as well. Um, I was, went to school for pastry and baking arts. I have an art ed background. I have some merchandising background um, as far as my education build, and additionally, some holistic health uh, coaching as well. So it's kind of this culmination of like food meets health meets art. <laughs> um, and I, in my own health journey, came across kombucha in about 20. 13-ish. Um, I was vegan at the time, and it was one of many of the diets that I was trying to figure out what worked best for me. And in that constant shift of diet, it really wreaked some havoc on my digestive system, and kombucha was one of those things that just really put me at ease. Um, but at the same time, when I first had it, like I think many, didn't quite enjoy it, um, you know. Um, I didn't necessarily enjoy the way it tasted or smelled. And I had this principle around healthy food that I took away from my training at the Institute for Integrative Nutrition that was really this belief of, they, they call it the primary foods. Um, and those were areas of your life that not, it wasn't anything to do with food. It was like your personal um, personal aspects like your spirituality, your relationships, your work, um, and how those things impacted you even more than the food that you consumed per se. So my thought was that if the food you consume doesn't bring you joy, then what impact does that have on your health, you know, and how – good is it for you? If it's miserable going down, then does it like counteract the health benefits, you know? Um, so I just thought, why is healthy food not enjoyable? That just didn't make sense to me. Um, so I set out and was like, I'm going to make kombucha at home. Why not try it? Um, I was making all these other things at home, diving into cooking with making vegan food for myself and kombucha was just another thing I could be creative with and kind of get my hands dirty with and have fun. So even just those first batches, I thought like, let me just first understand how it's made and make it taste good. And 
from the first early batches, it was just much more flavorful. Um, the way I did it, the ingredients that I used, the process, flavorful and enjoyable than a lot of the kombucha I was drinking on the shelf. And friends and family I shared that with uh, believe, felt the same way. You know, They were like, this is the best kombucha I've, I've had, um, which really inspired me, you know? Yeah, no, I, I, I hear what you say. As a home brewer, I've also had a few comments. I mean, my batches tend to be hit and miss, and I don't dedicate myself to it. I, I, I do my two continuous brew containers and clean them out once a month. But it's curious, or I'm curious to hear, when you made that leap, uh, by the sound of it, you're about to talk, then you opened Coastal Craft Kombucha 10 years ago. And I've seen your videos. You've, you've got a pretty you know, sizable fermentation vessels, stainless steel. Um, what, what was your, I mean, let's get to the, the maybe the, the peak. I mean, what was your uh, production capacity? I see you had a number of flavors that you rebranded at one point. There's really nice design cans. Um, so from the early days making it at home, how, how big did it get? And, and you are obviously a more, you'd say, a, what are you, a regional East Coast brand, I guess you classify yourself yeah yeah i mean there was a it feels in retrospect like it happened so quickly and even in it it felt quick but it was quite a journey i i started brewing batches at home in you know a gallon jar and then a five gallon bucket and then a five gallon ceramic crock and then a 10 gallon ceramic crock and i was at the time working at a health food store that um, allowed me to test it there. I was selling baked goods that I was making at home there. And I was like, well, guess what? I make kombucha now too. And the amount that I was making at home um, with a friend of mine that I started the business with, um, the amount we were making just wasn't enough to supply this health food store. Um, and at the same time, we found out we technically were not supposed to be selling at this health food store. <laughs> we're making kombucha at home and selling it for that matter at all. Um, so we kind of paused at that point and took a risk and found our facility that initially was actually in 2015 built out so that I could bake there as well as brew kombucha there. So it was like half of a commercial baking kitchen and a half a kombucha brewery um, for the first like eight months. So um, in those first eight months, that first partnership just didn't work out. And I um, had another partner come in at the time. And within once that partnership, the new partnership kind of settled in from that point of like, let's say mid 2016 to 2018 thing, we scaled things a ton. So we went from like a handful of flavors to too many flavors, probably almost, I think almost 10 flavors at one point. Um, we did all of the branding and uh, packaging design in-house. Um, we had our base logo, but we decided on the fonts, and we, and we did all that in-house as far as designing the labels, and quickly scaled from those five-gallon buckets to, um, I think at one point we had like 20-something 300-liter um, fermenters that were just on wheels all over the place. And then we got 500 liter fermenters in addition to that. And then it just got to that point where it was like, these, these are just not big enough in 2018. So we switched over to um, IBC totes that we could brew about 10 barrel batches in, ferment about 10 barrel batches in. Um, 
and got bright tanks at that point. And our growth was really organic. We had, we were in multiple farmers markets and the customers at those farmers markets would spread the word in the community and people were coming to us for the most part. Our, uh, our sales effort didn't really turn into any type of formal approach until that 2018 year. Um, so we scaled really quickly, organically. Um, and then 2019 was our peak year. We were in a ton of office spaces in Manhattan, um, workspaces. That was like a big customer for us. We were in all the Whole Foods on Long Island um, growing there. And then COVID hit, of course. Um, so that took a toll um, on the dynamic of an already challenging second business partnership that was already kind of coming to an end, and it took a toll on the business as a whole. So at that point, um, we were brewing, I think it was, we had 10 or 10 or so of these 10-barrel um, IBC totes um, that we were brewing in, and we had two 10-barrel bright tanks. Um, we were still bottling everything by hand um, with a express fill for people in the industry. A lot of people know that name, the express fill um, forehead semi-automatic filler, labeling them with a semi-automatic labeler, capping them with like the gun, you know, um, and, and then COVID hit and um, our keg sales dropped dramatically and the partnership came to an end. So this was now my second partnership ending to navigate through. Um, neither of them were easy. Neither of them were short. Neither of them, um, both of them came with losses of personal relationships that um, made them even harder, you know. Um, and, you know, the second one, I just decided I'm going to do this on my own now. So that was really the shift that everybody saw um, from the outside in 2020 was a full rebrand that coincided with me really finally having the reins over being really clear about the mission and the goals of Coastal Craft and the values of the company, which were to make the most enjoyable kombucha so that people drank it for that first and foremost. And it could be something relatable, something approachable that fit into people's lifestyle and didn't feel like this super healthy product per se, um, while still having the health benefits because the authenticity of it was there always. Um, so yeah, yeah 2020 I, I, is I hear what you're shift. saying. Yeah, sorry, I, I hear what you're saying about partnerships. I know in, in many small businesses that's kind of a, a good news, bad news, and, and partnerships are maybe like some marriages are hard to keep going. Mm -hmm. uh, so by exactly. 2020, you were on your own. You did the rebrand. And in fact, I should let people know, uh, if you check out Symbiosis Magazine for 2022, you worked with Dino Creative to come up with a really beautifully designed uh, logo with the seagull and uh, looking over its shoulder and your, yeah. your, new, your, your new flavors or your, your, your rebranded uh, I guess the fonts and so on, and and at that yeah. point, so at that point, by the way, for those who don't know, when you say ten barrels, how many uh, liters or gallons are in a barrel? So some of the people. Might so there's thirty one thirty one gallons in a barrel, so it's roughly three hundred and ten gallons in a right. ten barrel. 
Yeah, yeah and that's how like the, the craft beer industry measures output in barrels. So yeah, so yeah. just so people know you you were doing yeah. uh, 10, 30 gallons, uh, 31 gallons. Okay, and so yeah, take take us through the next period till sure. uh, you know till today. Uh, four years <laughs> have gone by, and uh, yeah. You moved on, but what, how did the last four years go? Yeah, so we were on that really that trajectory that 2020 was supposed to be that like really pivotal year. I think we our growth in 2019 was roughly 40 percent. Um, so and it was just looking up and up. So 2020 really took a toll, and but that brand that rebranding more than anything. Um, it made the mission and the values clear, and it was also a way for me personally to dive back into the creative side of things that I really felt disconnected from for quite some time. I'm a creative at heart, and having a line of six flavors that you make consistently over and over and over again made me a little bit crazy. Um, I wanted to always come up with new things, and we use the farmer's markets to do things like that and seasonal flavors, but there wasn't so much room for me to create because there were other aspects of the business where I could be creative, but there was no time for them because we were just bogged down with making sure we could keep up with demand and keeping up with really operations. So um, now it's, you know, it's just me and I do the rebrand and it's, it's great. And we do, um, I eliminate some flavors and simplify things. And I also decided to rename some flavors so that, they aligned with the mission and the values and to really resonate with our customers as a Long Island-based company. So the flavor names were all um, related to or alluding to areas of the island, um, and the packaging design, each flavor had an illustration that went with the flavor name. So that was such a fun, creative project for me that really – reignited my passion and my creativity and gave me that little boost of energy to move past that really challenging time of COVID, a partnership ending and everything. Um, But with that still came the challenges of now running a business all on my own. And going through those two partnership endings, especially the second one, is grueling. It's exhausting. It's extremely stressful. Um, It to say the least, kind of takes the life out of you and happening during a pandemic made it, you know, much worse. So I kind of started to just struggle with finding employees, um, managing the business on my own, um, keeping up with just the day-to-day. I mean, I was the bookkeeper. I was the man. I managed every department. I... I literally managed every aspect of the business. And when I say manage, I don't mean, you know, necessarily do every single role, but oversee everything. Um, And it was just far too much. I had some really key employees that were critical in making it as manageable as it was for as long as it was. Um, One of them specifically being my sales rep, Brittany, who was with me from 2018 and stuck with me through all of it. Um, But, I felt like there was few people that I was able to find and hire that I could like lean on for extended periods of time. You know, like I had some other key employees that came on this one girl, Jenny, who was amazing. This guy, Spencer, who was amazing. Um, 
you know, there was few people, but they would be there for like six months or for a year, and then it would just be, all right, got to figure it out again, got to teach somebody else again. Um, so I was constantly training how, how people. How many employees? Sorry, so how many employees were, were you? I mean, you managed everything, but what was the total uh, headcount, so to speak? Uh, at most, at, the most employees that I ever had at a given period of time, and it was probably because I had farmer's markets and needed people for that, was maybe six, maybe, at most. But during, mm-hmm. like, consistent, consistently throughout the year, um, the peak would be, like, three or four, and that would include distribution, sales, uh, um, you know, administrative, production, like, it was maybe mm-hmm. three people working there with me at all times. So, and we were running and um, producing enough to supply roughly 250 accounts by the end of by the end of it. So, I was running myself to you know down to the ground to say the least. Um, I just was exhausted. Um, and to be honest, I got to a point where I just forgot why I was there in a sense. Like I, I, I knew what my passion was and I knew what my purpose was and my values, but I was so exhausted and so burnt out that I kind of lost sense of self and was lo- losing sight of intuition and how to make decisions. Um, I would find myself uh, really asking people for advice on everything because I didn't know what the hell to do. Like, I just felt completely lost. Um, and I could sit there and tell somebody why I started the company and what the values were, but that wasn't enough for me to keep pushing. Um, and I just felt like I was putting out fire after fire, essentially. Um, one fire would come up and I would try to put it out, and another one would ignite, and another one would ignite, and it was just a domino effect. And I, I had a mentor say to me at one point, you know, you need to hire firemen. Like, you can't be the firefighter. You need to hire firemen, and then you need to be the fire chief. Um, so I just was too tired to even figure it out, and it was just me, and it was just far too much on one person mm-hmm. to be managing. Um, so, yeah, I just I kind of hit a, a point at which I knew that I couldn't operate like this anymore. I felt pretty lonely. I don't know how many people speak about it, but entrepreneurship is can be a very lonely place. And um, being a business owner can be very lonely. People think that you have, you know, staff around you and that you have all these people purchasing your products and that you're conversating with people all day about business operations, but you're in your head by yourself feeling like you're in it alone. And, um, especially once I was a solo entrepreneur now. So I, uh, I actually ended up reaching out to some women locally who I knew were entrepreneurs and business owners just to find community. Um, and that led me to connect with them further and um, join a um, mastermind group of women who are entrepreneurs just sharing their challenges and giving each other guidance and advice um, and trying to inspire each other and motivate each other. Um, And through that group, I ended up actually finding my way to being invited to a um, 
psychedelic mushroom experience and ceremony. Um, you know, totally unexpected, I guess, in the realm of the, of the uh, story here, but I just was at a point where I felt totally lost. I was didn't know really what was going to drive me forward. Like I said, I didn't know who I was. I wasn't happy. I wasn't inspired. I didn't feel creative. Um, and it was just, I felt like a hamster on a wheel. And I knew I didn't want to live that way anymore. And I had been curious about psychedelics for a long time. I'd never tried them when I was a kid. So I was like, you know what? This feels like the time. <laughs> um, and I went to this experience and I walked out of it with feeling like I was just ready to move on and find the next path for myself. I didn't, I realized I had more joy and peace in that ceremony with myself than I had in a really long time. And at the end of the ceremony, the facilitator asked me or told me, they said, Hey, I heard you're that person that has the kombucha company. That's great. That's awesome. Um, you keep on doing that kombucha thing if that's what you want to do. And I don't know about you, Ian, but no one has ever asked, told me that I could to go do something if it's what I want to keep doing and given me, like, permission. You know, I don't know if anyone's ever said something like that to you, like, hey, you do this, this kombucha podcast, like, keep doing it if that's what you want to do, <laughs> you know. Um, so it yeah, was such I, a... I wait for that. Um, yeah, my wife's always saying, why do you spend so much time on the computer? You know, we are re retired and we travel and stuff, but um, I get the point uh, that you're making. I'm curious about the, you know, if you can go into more detail, uh, the psychedelic mushroom experience. I mean, sure. was it psilocybin? Was it ayahuasca? Yes. Was it... Uh, yeah, what, so what psilocybin. Kind of Presumably was, you know, in a guided format right? yeah yeah for sure yeah it was um a psilocybin experience um i have never i had never dabbled in psilocybin or any psychedelics before like i said so it was about an eight hour experience um where it was ceremonial there was you know spiritual aspects meditation sound healing um opportunities to share and connect with others but really just go inward and um I had realized a few things. One, I hadn't taken that much time for myself to just be with myself probably ever in my life, um, let alone under, you know, that state of being where I could just be with myself and feel myself. And the joy and the simplicity of it was something I had never come close to before. And the freedom that I felt to just really choose my my joy. And I had realized in that that I was sitting here building this brand and creating this product with the intention to bring people joy, to bring others joy, but I had lost my joy in it. Okay. I lost myself in doing that. And I thought for so long that showing up for others was what's going to make me happy and in the midst of that, stop showing up for myself. And it was like, well, I have it. Actually, I think I have it backwards, you know. Um, and it's so, it goes down to the simplest stuff like, oh, you can't be, you know, in a good relationship until you're happy with yourself and all of, all of those more basic ways of approaching this. But 
I started to really think about that more and uh, also realized just that I was in this stuck system and patterns of like these limiting beliefs about myself, um, yeah. having, lost, having lost my intuition, having lost trust in myself. So instead of closing the business the next day, like I really wanted to, <laughs> because when he said, do you really want, you know, keep doing it if you want to, I was like, you know what, I don't want to. So the next day I was like ready to shut the door. But instead I ended up really um, taking a deeper dive and deeper look at all of the systems, all the operations, procedures, all of the just ways that the business functioned and how I created all those and how maybe they didn't work that way and I needed to consider doing things differently. Um, so I ended up doing actually a microdosing program shortly after that ceremony in which I simultaneously really broke down um, the business and tried to reapproach it on a lot of different levels with a new way of thinking. Um, because I'm like, I'm not going to walk away from this until I give it like a real last shot and try new things, you know, and approach it differently, removing all those limiting beliefs about myself and um, the stories that I had created. Um, I approached business with the idea and concept of like, this is going to be hard. Life's hard. Running a business is going to be hard. You know, it's going to be a struggle. Good luck making money. Like, that's how I approached it. And here I was struggling, not making money. It was hard, you know. So I realized that I created that. I took, was able to take responsibility for that outcome and, um, and decided to re-approach re it, you know, with new, some new beliefs um, to then finally arrive at, well, this is just not what I want to do. You know, I set out to create a kombucha that people would enjoy and unlike any other that they've ever had. And I succeeded. And I was able to reevaluate what success meant for me in this venture and acknowledge that I did succeed. Um, I didn't set out to create this product that I would sell and distribute throughout the entire country. That's not really what I set out to do. And I was able to just honor it for what I did intend to do and that I succeeded at that. Yeah, I mean, curious to know then. So that was one thing that occurred to me is you'd spent 10 years, you'd had three, four, five, six employees. You had made a living at it, right? I mean, you said you didn't make much money, but it was you weren't going into debt every year that went by. Presumably you were paying your rent and, and car payments or whatever. So the the business did, is it correct to say it did support you for 10 years? Um, it barely supported me. It did not end in a, in a positive place. Um, it definitely was a hole I was getting deeper and deeper into with, with debts. So it was barely supporting me. I got really good at living minimally because another one of those stories I told myself was like, probably around a lot of self-worth stuff and like, well, you don't, you got to really work really hard and then you can, then you deserve this and then you deserve that. And, you know, I didn't really live, I love live very minimally. Um, I have for a really long time because I didn't maybe think I deserved it. I had a really 
you know, slave away and good luck if I make enough to live the way I want to live. You know, I hadn't taken a vacation in more than a couple of days in the entire, you know, eight and a half years that I had the physical place open um, because I didn't have time, but I also didn't have money to. Um, and I was paying employees and all that, but the debts were growing with the business. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't in a positive place. It just, I managed to cover what I needed to cover while building debt. Um, and, and yet you were in 250 accounts. You were in farmer's mm-hmm. markets. At, yep. Before the pandemic, you had a, a, a broad uh, draft business in the business uh, yeah. world in New York. So was it, the, yeah. did the numbers just not add up? I mean, should you have been charging more for each unit, you know, each can or each pour of kombucha versus well, what I think the that was. I think that a lot of the like mid-sized companies understand that, that you get you get to that point where you're so small that you can't make money because things are so inefficient, right? And then you hit the breaking point where the efficiencies start to kick in and the volume starts to kick in and now things can start to shift, you know, out of the red. And that period for me was really when COVID hit, it was 2019 into 2020, like we were going to start really paying down a lot of these debts we had started to. And then with the shift of the ownership and having to pay down some debts because of that um, and the loss of our highest margin sales in those office spaces and an increase in our more cost-effective products to I mean, co- less cost-effective products, costly um, products to, pr- consume, um, to produce rather, with the cans and shifting and all that. There were just so many costs associated with staying afloat during COVID that kind of like kicked me back into almost that startup mode of incurred mm-hmm. costs. Um, okay. And we really never... I kind of didn't crawl back out of that, you know, and now I'm producing at such a larger scale, but I have more cost and I have all this debt that's incurred from making my way through a pandemic (laughs) and without an infusion of capital during that. Um, So that's really what happened was we were on this trajectory and then a combination of the pandemic and, you know, I don't want to say ownership uh, shift caused that it was more the pandemic and the impact that had on the company because our highest margin sales were completely just vanished <laughs> with all those yeah. office accounts was closing yeah. so partly you're saying um you had the personal uh, epiphany uh, as a result of the workshop the psychedelics and and that led you to realize that the reason you'd started the company weren't true and Yet at the same time, if the pandemic hadn't happened, maybe it would have been more of a, you know, profitable, but maybe not. Maybe the environment yeah. wasn't there. So, so how has it wound down? I mean, you, you've now presumably, have you optioned off all your equipment and got out of your lease and are you debt free? And, and then, you know, maybe finally, what, what's the future hold for you? Yeah, sure. So, Um, the business has been completely closed up. Um, the equipment has been sold off and the debts are being managed, um, as best as possible. Um, and there was opportunities for the company to be, 
you know, sold or people were interested in it. But what kind of kept happening was I think people, um, one, like I said, the numbers weren't great, right? Because a part of those fires that I was putting out prevented me from reevaluating and really taking a look at the numbers and fixing the problems that had developed over the years. I was just too bogged down. Um, my One of my brother-in-laws is the CEO of, um, of his own company. Who's, he's grown a ton, and he's super helpful and knowledgeable. And I would sit with him monthly, and we'd go over financials and come up with a plan. And everything was like, all right, this sounds good. We can do this, do that. And then next day, I'd go to work, and there'd be 20 fires to put out. And I couldn't really do anything that I planned to do um, because I was just – stuck in that, that, that negative loop kind of. Um, so at the end there, I um, was trying to show people, you know, the option to purchase the company, and it just didn't look on, good on paper. And it got to the point where I would just tell people, I'm like, this business doesn't look good on paper, but what I can tell you is that I've done all the hard work. The recipes are here. The branding is here. The blueprint is here. This business requires capital. It re- requires marketing, um, but you, the hard work is done. You know, it's it's plug and play at this point. And I had even explored a co-packing solution that would take care of production if somebody didn't want to actually manufacture. Um, I had formulated with a co-packer so that someone could just buy the brand, but people didn't like the numbers, and I needed someone to see the value in what I built, but I set a really short timeline because I knew I needed to get out. So I gave myself like three months to find somebody and because I was just no longer willing to suffer. I just decided like this was, it was enough and I'm not going to force Rachel to suffer anymore because she doesn't deserve that. Um, so I had that short timeline and um, a lot of those buyers also thought, well, if Rachel's not in it, then, then what? Um, because I was really the face of the brand. Like you said it yourself. I mean, I was on the social media. I like Rachel, Coastal Craft was Rachel and Rachel was Coastal Craft, which was part of what made it so great. And part of what was like my demise, you know, because I, my identity was this business and it was kind of evident. So people are like, well, we can't buy you. Right. Um, and I really didn't want to stay heavily involved. Um, so it just got to that point where I just had to say, okay, I'm, I'm walking away. And I had someone recently um, who was interested still, and they just decided to walk away because it felt like a startup to them because they couldn't see something profitable um, in the numbers, which was from the start what I had said. Um, so there was like – it was really – and this has only kind of been more clear for me in the past like week or two that it was just time for me to move on. It was time to really accept the success of what I set out to create. And a lot of the work I've done recently personally is around like, what does success really mean to each of us? You know, like what are we told is successful and what is it really um, to each of us individually? So, you know, selling coastal craft is not what I needed to do in order to feel like I succeeded. Right. So you didn't have that, what entrepreneurs talk about, the exit strategy. Some people start businesses and they've got an eye on, you know, in Uh-oh. the tech world with no. the public. Or, so you, you've kind of personally uh, presume you've got 
plans for the future that don't involve kombucha, that you're, yeah. you're fulfilling your, your life in that sense. I'm curious, would you say, you know, you, you must have known other businesses in the East Coast, maybe region, uh, kombucha businesses. Is this, would you say, typical of, of businesses of a certain size that it's hard to turn a profit in this world? Um, uh, yeah, absolutely. What, I think especially yeah. after COVID, if they were, if this was a business that existed before COVID and had to go through COVID, absolutely. Um, I also think that that is largely due in part to the emotional and mental impact that that had on people um, and how little that's, but everyone wants to talk about, oh, the costs have went up and this happened and that happened. But what about the emotional and mental impact that that had on people and what it had on the business owner? who maybe was already slightly struggling and now really feels like they're failing because they're struggling even more to make it now. They just feel like they're failing and they feel like a failure. And then they start to tell themselves all these stories about themselves. And now who are they to find their way through it all because they don't even believe in themselves anymore. And I think that's a largely what happened to my, to me, um, I knew that at the end and I still chose to leave because even though I believed in myself, I didn't, I knew it's not what I wanted to do anymore. Um, and that's kind of the direction now that I've taken is everything I learned in starting a business, running it, and mostly in deciding to walk away from it is things, tools and information I want to use to uh, support and empower and guide other people um, because for the most part, we're all just standing in our own way. <laughs> and, um, you know, we've all heard about businesses that have started during the worst of times or in the worst location or whatnot who have succeeded. And I, it's largely due in part to and 100% due in part to those individuals and their mental and their emotional capacity and the tools they have to move through challenging and difficult times and periods. Um, and a lot of us just don't have those tools um, or the guidance or the support. And we get stuck and we create stories and we create narratives and have a few, a, like a slew of limiting beliefs that we operate on and wake up every day with on our shoulders that prevent us from really accomplishing our goals and our dreams. Um, and that's something that is near and dear to my heart now from what I've gone through. Um, so I've kind of shifted now into a, you know, integrative coaching approach for people on a business and personal level, especially creatives, knowing what it's like to be a creative and be stuck in standing in my own way and not able to move forward, you know, um, as well as some, um, some work in, in the microdosing um, realm where those same aspects of personal growth can be combined with um, the coaching and the use of psychedelics um, in a microdosing setting to facilitate and um, foster some of that growth with the neuroplasticity that's offered from the psychedelics to move through that, those beliefs yeah, and patterns. Yeah. Um, I mean, you talked about, you mentioned microdosing very briefly. That's something you've continued to be involved in. I, I live near Silicon Valley and 
I think it's fair to say that microdosing's uh, a feature of the landscape around here. But for listeners outside of this realm, can you just quickly say, you know, what is microdosing? I mean, does it, it, it sort of name speaks for itself, I guess. You take very micro-sized doses of psychedelics such as LSD and psilocybin. Is that, and you can still yeah. function? Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, there's, so there's microdose, and then what a lot of people think of when they think of psychedelics and people taking them is a macrodose, right? So a macrodose, you're not going anywhere, you shouldn't, and you, the best way to experience that is to control your set and your setting, so the people that you're with and where you are. Um, but in a microdose, it allows you to experience the benefits of the neuroplasticity without impacting your day-to-day functionality and ability to operate and navigate through the world as you would, whether it's at work or, you know, with your children or whatnot, Um, but you still have that neuroplasticity aspect. So you can now, especially with some coaching involved um, and some, like, impactful content, that you can read and learn through in the program, you can get the benefits of the medicine without having to stop your own, your entire life. And you can do so in a pace that allows you to integrate it into your life versus you go into, you know, a macro dose into a, a ceremony format, or even if you're not in a ceremony and you just take a full macro dose of a psychedelic it's going to be a lot. You're going to probably learn a lot, experience a lot, and then you're going to have a lot to work with after that. Um, so it can be too, it can be too much, um, especially without proper guidance and facilitation. And it's also just not necessarily needed to get going. You know, um, with microdosing, you can really like, move through it and learn at a more manageable rate and incorporate it into your life without having to put a, put a halt on yeah. everything. So it sounds like if, if people want to know more about this, because obviously you can't walk into your local Dwayne Reed drugstore no. or Walmart to order a, to get a prescription. But if people want to know more about this, you did mention you've got the coaching approaches. Is there a contact way people can contact you who might have been listening to this and are curious? Yeah, in, sure. Are you um, for that? What, how is that working? Yeah, so it's um it's something newer that I've um, been working on developing um, with another coach and expanding on you know some existing programs um, to add in the aspect of catering to creatives like myself. Um, but people can contact me through Instagram. My Instagram's you know Rachel Rappa. Um, or my email is just rachel.rappa36 at gmail.com. I'm more than happy to reach out there if you're just curious and have questions. Um, and once again, like the microdosing and the um, people are so curious about it and all that, but it's not for everybody, right? Um, but that doesn't mean that people don't need guidance and support. So I also, you know, offer programs that don't have any medicine work involved if people just for looking for some, some coaching, um, whether that's business or life, just from an integrative standpoint. Mm. Well, this has been great, Rachel. I really um, value your honesty about the business, about the personal struggles you went through, as well as some of the information you shared about, you know, the, the economics of uh, small, medium-sized 
Kombucha Production. And uh, it's been great talking with you, and good luck in the future. Thank you so much, Ian. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to Booch News. For more about kombucha, please visit boochnews.com.